back again to another episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast. I'm your host, as always, Vak Jamal, and this is the first podcast of 2018. We made it through one year. Now we're on to year two. Just so you know, I don't anticipate a whole lot of changes to the podcast in the next year. I think we will uh, keep rolling the way we're rolling, talking about five things I read every week. And today's kind of a a random grab bag. There's no more, like, Christmas theme to tie us together. But before I go too far, the five things I read this week podcast is a division of Entering the Public Square, a blog founded on the sincere belief that every Christian should understand the importance of discussing Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. You can find us online entertainthepublicsquare.com. The podcast is hosted there. You can also find the podcast on iTunes or in the Google Play Store. So there are plenty of ways to check it out if you want to. If you do listen to it in whatever fashion you listen to it, please leave a review. I'd love the feedback, and the algorithms would love me more if I had more feedback. So... Let's dive in, shall we? The first article I have for you is from the Imaginative Conservative. It was published on December 29th. And it's called Sherlock Homeless. It's written by Joseph Pierce. And this article begins with Pierce, who'd never watched the TV show Sherlock starring Benedict Cumberbatch before. And it's kind of his initial impressions of the first episode. If y'all don't remember the episode, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin it for you. The criminal turns out to be a taxi driver who's hiding in plain sight. Nobody suspects him because he kind of blends in. He's one of thousands of taxis, and so... It's almost the always there but never seen kind of dilemma. And I only mention that not to ruin the first episode for you, but rather to point out the, in this article, Pierce talks about how Holmes, in this particular portrayal, he really doesn't fit into the world, if you will. In in that episode, Holmes refers to himself as a high-functioning sociopath. And Pierce points out, and here's a quote, the truth is that Holmes only differs from everyone else in terms of aptitude, but not in terms of attitude. He's smarter than everyone else. But he's equally screwed up and equally self-centered. Nobody is well-adjusted and nobody lives their lives by self-sacrificially laying them down for others. So, the... And that is true. If you've seen Sherlock, the the whole storyline revolves around him essentially being insane and he catches insane people. 
Except for he's catching the bad guys. He's not the bad guy, if you will. And so for Pierce, the sort of homelessness, and that ties into the plot, where it's the the taxi driver who's always there but never seen. Holmes, he says, and here's another quote, such were my impressions upon watching the inaugural episode of Sherlock. I watched it with a growing sense of sorrow for the homelessness of Holmes, and for the homelessness of those who wrote it, and for the homelessness of so many of those who watch it. I share their sense that we live in the veil of tears, and that we see it through a veil of tears. But unlike these poor souls, I am aware that we do not need to be homeless. Sherlock Holmes clearly is never comfortable in the world he finds himself in. We can see that in this particular portrayal by Cumberbatch, which I'm a huge fan of. <clears throat> I love watching Sherlock particularly. I wait for the seasons to come out. I'm still waiting for another season. But it's a fair point that this particular version of Sherlock is never content, is never satisfied. He's always on the run, and specifically, he's always on the run. Because the whole... <clears throat> the whole world around him is also sociopathic. He is brilliant, and he's smarter than everyone else, and he figures out problems before they do. But... That isn't because his attitude is necessarily different than those around him. So if you're a Sherlock fan, this is a thought-provoking article. Uh, from the Imaginative Conservative, written by Joseph Pierce on December 29th of last year. And it is entitled, Sherlock Homeless. Moving on then to an article from a new source I haven't used before. It's the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. It was published on January 3rd by Jacqueline S. Parrish. And it's called J.R.R. Tolkien, The Missionary's Ideal Companion. Obviously, the International Mission Board is a huge organization that sends missionaries all over the world. And so this is an inside perspective of how The Lord of the Rings really made a difference for this author. Here's her thesis. I would argue that Tolkien's fantasy epic is an excellent applicant to any missionary's library. <clears throat> when you're exhausted, the in-flight or when you've exhausted the in-flight entertainment system, and your Kindle's running dry, J.R.R. can still spin his tail under your reading lamp. When the road in ahead does indeed go on and on, and home is far behind. Tolkien is the ideal companion. And she has three main reasons for that. First, <coughs> The Lord of the Rings, some people have said it's kind of, and about fantasy in general, it was a criticism that was leveled at C.S. Lewis when he wrote Narnia, that largely it's escapism. 
you can't handle the whole reality of the world, so you need fantasy. You need to run back into your ideal world. But the point here by Parrish is that the Lord of the Rings is an escape, not out of reality, but into it. We live our 21st century lives hemmed in by the incessant lie that this world is all there is, that truth, goodness, and beauty are nothing more than random sparks in, in the simian brain. But Tolkien will have none of that foolishness. That's a little bit later down. He leads us out of physical facts through glorious fantasy so that we may finally arrive at eternal truth. This is a big deal. I got my master's degree in apologetics from Houston Baptist University. And their program is highly steeped in what's called cultural and imaginative apologetics. The main premise behind this discipline of apologetics is slightly different than what you might see at a place like Biola or Southern Evangelical, which are awesome schools, and they're highly philosophical. So, in those schools, and for most of apologetics in general, you see apologetics done by simple proofs. Well, not simple proofs, sometimes highly complex proofs, but it's the application of logic. It's the application of kind of these these different disciplines that don't always appeal to everyone. Because think about it this way. There are a lot of things that are logical, but humans are irrational creatures. Not all the time, but certainly we have our moments of irrationality. And so even though it may be clearly obvious that an unborn child is a human life form, we deny the logic in that scenario because we don't want to. We're really good at denial logic, and so sometimes apologetics needs to come from a different angle. Sometimes we need to communicate truth in a different way because logic doesn't always appeal to everyone. And that's the point here about Tolkien. Sometimes in his fantasy, he, as a very devout Roman Catholic man, intertwined so much Christian truth in all of his works that maybe that will help someone realize something about our world that's true in his world. Maybe for his portrayal of nobility in, for example, the character of Aragorn or Gandalf, sex or self-sacrificial love for his fellow members of the Fellowship or Sam and his brotherly love carrying Frodo up Mount Doom. Maybe we can realize all of that in a better way in the story and cause people to think, oh, if that applies in Middle Earth, it'd be great if I treated my fellow people here on Normal Earth that way. So sometimes the imagination is a way that we can approach people who might not act rationally. They might not embrace the rationality types of arguments that I find really powerful, but not everyone does. It's an alternative way. So that's one reason for Tolkien, that for Tolkien being valuable for missionaries. The second is that his story is really 
throw a broad brush, right? The Hobbit. Let's start with The Hobbit. It's the simplest. Bilbo thinks he's comfortable at home. A mission appeals to him. He goes to the Lonely Mountain with the dwarves. They complete their mission. Life is good. He comes back to the Shire. Slightly richer, but not... <coughs> not like the richest Hobbit ever, necessarily. Although it's probably debatable, depending on the value of the Mitho vest. So, the journey's not over, though. Even though he's home, his final home, we find out at the end of The Lord of the Rings, is in the Great Haven. And this is kind of the point here from Paris, because for many missionaries, even the flight back to the States is not truly a homecoming. We've changed. We no longer fit into the spaces we left. We're surrounded by friends and family who love us deeply, but we can't really understand the world we've seen. Any more than Sam's gaffer could understand the songs of Lorien or the dungeons of Moria. When you come back, maybe it's because we never fit there perfectly in the first place that we don't fit there now. Frodo thought he was fine in the Shire, but by the end, and I actually have a very long theory about this if you ever care to read it. The Shire wasn't saved for Frodo. It was saved for Sam. He's the only one who truly belonged in the Shire. Frodo came back. He had lived there for a long time. But clearly he was longing for something else. And that turned out to be the Great Havens. And finally, Homeward Bound, the last point of this article. The, the reality is there is going to be a day when we all do find our true home. And you, you begin to hunt some of the beauty of that in The Lord of the Rings. And The Hobbit, too, to be fair. But it's not a loss, necessarily. It does mean for Frodo some broken relationships. He physically goes away from Sam, Rose, all their children, all the remaining members of the Fellowship. He physically goes where they cannot go. So there is a breakdown. But it's a joyful moment because he found where he belongs. And for all of us, we can face our future with a joyful perspective. We hope right now for a future we haven't seen yet. And that ought to be of some comfort for missionaries, but I think it applies to all of us. So this article was on the international, um, International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention website. It was written by Jocelyn S. Parrish Parish on January 3rd of 2018, entitled J.R.R. Tolkien, The Missionary's Ideal Companion. Great article, definitely. Now we're moving away from literature a little bit. Um, this is from the Acton Institute Power Blog, written on January 4th of 2018, by Joseph Sunday. The Dystopian Prospects of a World Without Work. So we talk a lot about autonomy, We'll have robots that do everything. We'll have self-driving cars. I saw an article in Japan 
about how they're beginning to use robots to be nurses, to help like senior citizens or other people who need physical help, say transferring or standing up or rolling over. This article then cites another article from Touchstone, written by Hunter Baker, who incidentally was the first guest I ever interviewed on Entering the Public Square, so a shout out to Dr. Baker there. But there's a question of whether or not we're made for work. It seems that all people are are wired to do their job and are wired to work. And Baker writes, while Sunday quotes, Stories show that the good life does not consist in escaping work. It consists in finding meaningful work to do. Work is one of the primary avenues through which we make contributions to the lives of others while simultaneously enriching our own. I'm reading The Wealth of Nations for a class I'm taking this spring, and that's the backbone of capitalism right there. I produce something, and Adam Smith would say, if I produce more than I need, then I trade it with someone else, or trade it for money, which I then trade to someone else. I use my surplus to make contributions to my own life, to enrich my own, but also to help other people, and to give them what they want. If I'm really good at making shoes, somebody else is going to want shoes also, and they'll pay me for them. And so the question then is what happens in a world where we don't have to work anymore? Let's say a hundred years down the road, I probably won't be here, you probably won't be here, but let's say everything is fully automated. We don't have to drive, we don't have to work, we don't, all of our jobs have practically become obsolete because robots can do them better than we can, faster and with a higher degree of accuracy. It really becomes a question of what then? And Baker wraps up with a very powerful point. When the Lord returns, let us be found working, not to make ourselves wealthy and powerful, but to be found faithful as his chosen stewards, as brothers and sisters trying to shine forth for his kingdom and his glory. And that's an important point right there. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam was given a task to do. He had to name all the animals. He wasn't just to sit there, hang out, and do nothing, and then sit there with Eve and hang out and do nothing. There was work to be done. The problem becomes we don't like to work. Perhaps that is a result of the corruption of sin. It probably is our laziness. But if God created us to work, then any type of future vision that separates us from work is going to have horrible consequences on human nature. After all, if it is true that God did ordain humanity to be productive and to do things, God didn't misprogram us, guys. And when we start going against 
that which we are naturally inclined towards is going to wreak havoc on our nature itself. So this article is from the Acton Institute Power blog, written by Joseph Sunday, although largely quoting an essay from Hunter Baker and Touchstone. It's called The Dystopian Prospects of a World Without Work, and it was published on January 4th, by the way. Now we have a long article, and this one you'll definitely want to read because I'm not going to hit every point. It's from Crisis Magazine, written by Tom J. on January 3rd. Whose school is it? And this comes down to a fundamental divide in modern society. Whose responsibility is it to educate children? Do children belong to the state for their education? Or do children belong to their parents? And by extension, the community that their parents can influence. In a totally decentralized system, clearly the parents and the town would be in charge. In our highly bureaucratic system, and even more so, this article mentions Canada that's very involved in raising children. And they actually called teachers co-parents of their children which puts teachers on a very high plane. I love teachers. My mom's a teacher. I love my mom. But there's a certain division here between two views of how we educate our children. On one hand, the state knows best. We should let the state do it because they have all the brightest people all put in a room and then they come out with a curriculum that must be right. Or we have another vision that says, well, but I'm a parent, I know my child best, and my child is my responsibility, therefore I should have a highly active role in making decisions about what my child learns. And traditionally, that's been done on the local school level. Not everyone homeschools, but in a lot of small towns, you can go to the school board meeting and talk to the school board and tell them, you know, why children should be taught this and that and this and that. Unfortunately now, with all of the imposition from higher places, they don't have much power to alter the curriculum on the school board level either. But that's not the way it always was. And this article, Jay, he says, quote, we must dispense with the current assortment of lessons Educational is called curriculum, especially since this means indoctrination into progressivist orthodoxy. He goes on to give some examples. And here's one example that really stood out. Sorry, it's a little long, but I saw a news story recently, a lot in a school, where a third grade class was learning how to identify fake news. The benighted teacher held up a replica newspaper from the World War II era, noting the headlines. She then did the same with the current newspaper. Besides the obvious fact that third graders don't read newspapers, it should be evident to any educator that third graders can hardly conceive of events at the end of their block, let alone such ponderous events as wars and elections in places even more distant and thus difficult to comprehend. The lesson's objective. Students will come to recognize they are being lied to, 
and develop a habit of vigilant suspicion of everyone. The great John, or St. John Paul II, spoke of the, quote, masters of suspicion, close quotes, proliferating in modern society. That's just one example, but you can see the, the tension here. We have these higher-ups and these higher cultural trends, right? We all talk about fake news all the time. And now we must teach them to our third graders. And we must teach them that even though, I mean, when I was in third grade, I, I was probably more interested in history than a lot of children. Just because of who I am, I enjoyed that stuff. So I, I knew a lot about, you know, different countries in the world and things like that. A lot of third graders aren't even thinking about that just because it's not their interest and they're not old enough or developed enough to really get all of these cultural differences in different times and different places unless they happen to be interested in that and they decide to, to focus their attention in that direction. And so that really is, I mean, it's the question, right? There are things that people want to teach children, particularly when they are brought down from higher places because of larger cultural trends that our society really wants to embed in our children. And the question then becomes, is that the responsibility of those higher ups who don't know my child, my hypothetical child? Or is that the responsibility of me and my local community who know each other, we respect each other, and we understand that Okay, we have children who really might not benefit so much from learning about fake news because they don't read a newspaper, <laughs> but they might really benefit from learning, let's say, critical thinking skills in the context of something else. See, you can still teach the lesson, and that's what I think this article kind of gets that and modern education is missing. We force people to fit into a particular mold because someone somewhere high up in the red tape of bureaucracy has decided that this is the only way it ought to be taught. And truly that might not fly for every child in every situation. It's hard to broad brush anything in life, but I mean, come on, children, they're all individuals. And if children are all individuals, they need to be approached individually, and we can't pretend that they're all the same, and we can't pretend that every community is the same. We can't pretend that teaching about fake news in Alabama will look like teaching fake news in Vermont. We can't pretend that every teacher is going to have the same way to communicate this information. And the problem then is what do we do when we have this disconnect? Do the way it's done now, it's shoved down from the top. Isn't the better way to actually allow communities to educate their children? Obviously within general guidelines, all children should learn reading, writing, arithmetic, blah, 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 blah. All that stuff should be in a curriculum. But the actual method of teaching might be different for different classes, for different regions. 
if you're in a really poor area or a really rich area, for example, if you're in Manhattan and you're teaching children about what it's like in the Wild West, that'll be a different perspective on what the Wild West is than perhaps if you're teaching children who actually live in the West now and understand like maybe that was their family history back in the days of the Wild West. And so maybe there's a different understanding. So again, this article is very long. There are many more points in it. But that was the one that predominantly stood out to me. It's from Crisis Magazine, written on January 3rd by Tom Jay. Whose school is it? And moving on to article number five. It's from The Atlantic. Does counting your blessings work? It was also written on January 4th by Sonia Huber. If you come to my church, Trevor, which you should, if you don't, we occasionally sing this song called Count Your Blessings. The concept is if you count your blessings and see what God's done for you, you're going to be really surprised because God does a lot for you. And that's certainly a Christian understanding of gratitude, right? As Christians, we appreciate what God has done for us. He's given us so many gifts that we really we really need to come to an appreciation of so that we understand then how great God actually is. Because oftentimes we just sweep him under the rug, say, ah, whatever. I mean, sure, God might have done that. Maybe he didn't. Fine. And the problem is, and this is what the article to the Atlantic talks about, and it does reference the hymn I just mentioned. This idea of gratitude seems to have interesting, like, repercussions. Some research indicates, this is a quote, that gratitude lists are helpful or are about as helpful as other methods of paying attention or monitoring one's feelings. Even so, people stuck with the gratitude practice, maybe because it makes them feel good or maybe, or perhaps because it's easy. And there can be too much of a good thing. Some researchers have argued that a weekly practice might be more effective than the daily tune-in and tune-up, because too much gratitude can lead to kind of a numbing. Not all studies show a benefit, however. The practice seems to help those in despair more than those who are already even killed. Sharing gratitude with others seems to be beneficial, but only if the listener appears to be appreciative and engaged. Some studies indicate that when used with children, such lists either have no effect or might be counterproductive. One study indicated that children seem to respond more positively to the idea of envisioning their best possible selves when tested against the gratitude list. Here's the thing. I didn't see it in the article. <clears throat> but I want a breakdown of how many people who practice gratitude are people of faith 
and theists. How many Christians, Muslims, Jews, or even if you're a polytheist, you have a higher power to be thankful to. If you're Hindu, you can be thankful to any of the pantheon of gods for whatever good thing you've received that day. If you're an atheist, and Chesterton had a, a provocative quote about this and about the problem of atheism, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is really thankful and has no one to thank. And so that's the breakdown I would like on this article, because it, it kind of makes it sound like gratitude might not be a good response. Um, and at the end, the <clears throat> the the bottom line is maybe we shouldn't always worry about gratitude less. Um, but maybe. Here's a quote from the end. The gratitude list is not a miracle cure, but a set of training was to help people think about how they have needed others and how their own hands should have extended in support. I use them with a respect for what they can do, along with a desire to know myself in the world beyond those lists. And for that insight, I am grateful. There's no reference to a higher power whatsoever, like the famous hymn writer about counting your blessings. That hymn was written under a specific understanding that when you count your blessings, you're doing so to see what God has done for you. Consequently, we really, if we're going to start this exercise of counting blessings, I, I think from a secular perspective, it's just not going to work. If we don't have an object to be grateful toward, What's the point of being grateful at all? How how can I be grateful to blind chance for giving me an awesome day at work? I mean, it just, it doesn't add up. So, I would recommend checking out this article, Does Counting Your Blessings Work? It's on the Atlantic, written by Sonia Huber, on January 4th, 2018. And thank you for coming along for the ride again for this the first episode of the Five Things I Read This Week podcast in 2018. Of course, I'll be back next week ready to talk about more. If you would leave us a review wherever you listen to this, I would be grateful. Ha! Have a great week, guys.